So a few weeks ago, uh, Tracy and I went to her parents' cabin, which is up north uh, by Bonneco Provincial Park, if you know that area, north of Belleville. And we, woke, we came late at night, and we woke up uh, early in the morning, and we discovered that the place, the, the woods, the, everywhere, has been overrun by gypsy moth caterpillars. I don't know if you've heard about this. This year in Ontario, these two-inch caterpillars are everywhere. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's a mass year for, for these caterpillars, and maybe you've, you've noticed them on trees uh, or in the park or uh, read about it in the paper. And then around this time, right now, uh, these caterpillars who have been feeding on leaves all summer long, they cocoon. Right, they find a place to uh, hunker down, and in one of the most surprising and you know, elaborate stories in nature, I'd say, a caterpillar goes into a cocoon for a few weeks and then emerges from that, that home that they've made for themselves a different thing. No longer a caterpillar. They, they come out a different insect. They come out a moth in this case. It's a day and night drastic change that happens in these creatures. They become unrecognizable in their previous way of, of being. They're no longer caterpillars. Now, is this a good image for the Christian life? Does trusting in Jesus transform us so radically and powerfully that we become different people? Yes. Yes. But is it that simple? Is it as simple as making a cocoon and trusting Jesus and all of a sudden, poof, we come out changed overnight? For many of us, we find this attention that we feel. We feel a tension between the way we want to live, the way we think we should live as a transformed believer, and the way that we actually live. About the good we want to do as a follower, but the wrong things we actually find ourselves doing. Have you felt this tension before? Why do we feel this way? Why, why, do, why is this the way that, that, that we are living? Is, is there something wrong with us? What does the Bible have to say about it? See, the scriptures this morning meet us in our troubled and conflicted hearts and invite us to consider the process of gospel change. So what is gospel change? Paul, the man who wrote Romans, was one of the most central figures in the New Testament, right? He, I'd say he's the most central figure other than Jesus, has a dramatic experience where he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, a road where he was actually headed to persecute Christians, to harm those who were following Jesus. And he meets Jesus, and his life does a U-turn. He's converted, right? He goes the opposite direction. And so if anyone is changed deeply by meeting Jesus, transformed on the spot, Paul is, right? Almost immediately after Paul's conversion, he goes away for a significant period of time. He devotes himself to the, the teaching of the apostles. He relearns and puts into practice his new faith and begins preaching and teaching about Jesus as the Savior of the world. He goes on missionary journeys 
to preach the gospel, become an apostle to the Gentiles. It's, it's an amazing, transforming work of God in him. And so many of us who have grown up in the church or know the writings of Paul, we see Paul as this incredibly devoted and faithful Christian. And yet, years after his conversion, he writes this letter. It's years after he met Jesus on that road that he writes Romans 7. And he blows us out of the water when when he switches from the past tense in the letter to the present tense in this passage that Phil read for us this morning. Paul isn't talking about a past experience in Romans 7. Without forcing a reading on this text, we have to be honest that that Paul isn't talking about a pre-conversion experience here. Romans 7 isn't about life before Jesus for Paul. It's about life with Jesus. This is a present moment thing. This battle, this tension with sin is alive in the Apostle Paul's devoted life. To Jesus. He says, for I know the, that good itself does not dwell in me, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, I keep doing. And we think, how can someone as devoted, as transformed such a central figure in the words of Scripture, godly person in the Bible, how can he say something like that? How can he admit that he has the desire to do what is good but can't actually carry it out? And the reason is because Paul knows the process of gospel change, of deep change, that it is, it is not a moment, it is a lifelong thing. See, in this life, Paul is aware that there is no moment, no finish line, no time in our lives when we achieve perfection or wholeness. That there is and will be a a battle, a tension between good and evil, between what we want to do and what we actually do. Paul simply names this. But the most incredible thing is that this isn't bad news. That naming this tension actually is the key that opens up the door to deep change in us. That recognizing this tension leads us, provides the opportunity for us to be continually transformed. Because gospel change is the continual process of God revealing our sin to us, for us seeing our sin only so that he can invite us more deeply to fall on his grace, to experience his love and follow him more closely. Gospel change, change, deep change, relies on our ability to see our sin Gospel change isn't a surface-level thing. It's deep, and it gets at the heart of, of who we are, this deep tension that is alive in each of us. This, as Paul puts it in Romans 7, is, is alive in each one of us and actually provides the opportunity for us to change. 
But why do we need gospel change? I mean, are we that bad that we need to be constantly paying attention to our sin? The passage this morning in Matthew begins with a a slightly confusing piece, maybe about children playing in the marketplace. These children say to the others around them, you know, we played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. And and so these two different, um, playing the pipe and you did not dance is referring to uh, a wedding in that culture. And saying a dirge, dirges were, a, a dirge? I don't, I don't know how to put that word. But this type of song is, um, is for what, what they would sing at funerals. And, and so what, what, Je- what Jesus is saying in this is something that would commonly happen in the marketplace where children would be playing, they would be um, playing dress up with different uh, celebrations or events in their culture. And the people that were involved in the hubbub and they were, you know, going to the, to the market to buy groceries or to, you know, pick up home improvement items, they, they'd go by these children and they could sing along. They could participate in their game. But not in this case. In this story, the people don't pay attention to the children. They don't play along. They walk right by because they don't want anything to do with their songs. One commentator I read put it like this. He said, the central figures in salvation, James, John and Jesus, are rejected by the people. And that's what this image is showing us. The people walk right by them. John the Baptist is too holy. Jesus is not holy enough. The opponents of Jesus will only accept him on their own terms. See, people pass by Jesus because he calls them to pay attention to something that we would rather sweep under the rug. He says, repent. That's what Jesus and John both say, repent. Turn away from your own living, way of living. We often pass him by because we don't think we need him. Many people in our culture would say that the best way to change isn't to uh, look outside of ourselves to, you know, some sort of religious law or, or God, but to look inside and to look inside each one of us and say, I'm going to live the way that I think is best. I remember watching a Ravi Zacharias, the late apologist, interact with a listener who, who asked a question from the audience of one of his talks. And the, the man's question was, why are you so afraid of subjective moral reasoning? Which is to say, why are you so afraid of people living the way that they want to live? Living the way that they think is best. And Ravi responded to the man, do you lock your door at night? And the man, kind of confused, asked, yeah, sure, I lock my door at night. And Ravi said, why? What are you afraid of? See, what this man was, was asking Ravi in the question, why are you afraid of people living the way they want to? It, 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 he was saying, you know, we, we should be able to walk away from God's law, to ignore the sinful nature in each one of us and just live how we think is best. But deep down... We all lock our door at night because we don't trust people. We're afraid of what we are capable of as human beings. We don't actually want people to just 
act the way that they want to act. See, we can't just ignore our sinful condition, the tension in each one of us by pretending that it doesn't exist and that each person can decide how they want to live for themselves. That's not true. Everyone locks their doors at night. But to push this a little bit further, similar to what I heard Ravi say, actually pops up in our Facebook and Instagram news feeds all the time. See, on social media, we can be overwhelmed at times with pictures of people who seem to have it all together. You know exactly, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? This is the mom of three who cooks, cleans, and makes organic whole food snacks for her kids who look great, has a meal ready for her husband when he comes home. The house is all clean. Or this is the, the one-wheeling vlogger who, who has every piece of tech that's imaginable under the sun and seems like his life is perfect. Or this is the retired, uh, the pictures of the retired couple who on Facebook you know that they, it looks like they're retiring right. You know, they, they, they get away and they're actually away. They, they are enjoying themselves with, with each other and everything seems perfect for them. See, in these images that saturate our Facebook and Instagram feeds are images that often lack our sinful nature. They put to us, a form of perfection. There is no brokenness, often. There is no sin. Facebook and Instagram likes to sweep our sinful condition under the rug. But it does pop up. Where does it pop up? It pops up in us because we can't reach that picture of perfection, can we? It's unrealistic for us to achieve these images of perfection that we see on Facebook and Instagram, and that makes us feel worse, feel less than, feel tainted, because we can't live up to the, these images. We, we look at that mom who does this, this, and this. We look at that successful uh, you know, person who, who has the right career and is moving up in, 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 at work and um, everything seems to be going perfect and we feel hopeless to get there. But what if that image is off? What if those Facebook and Instagram photos don't tell the whole story? If sinful nature is everywhere and in everyone, as Paul says, then these Facebook photos offer us a false story. They just aren't true. And worse, they don't give us any way to change where we are at. They don't give us room for failure. And if brokenness and, the, and sin in us is actually an invitation to change deeply, there is no room for change. See, we live in a culture where the reality of our sinful nature is often ignored. We often are people who walk right past 
the invitation of the children to play along. The invitation of Jesus to repent and believe. And we try to sweep it under the rug. We can't change ourselves by trying to be perfect and live the perfect life. And we do this with religion too. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty good at stuffing down and covering up any brokenness that I find in myself. See, facing sin makes us feel vulnerable. It makes us feel uncomfortable. And it's a lot easier to try putting on a good face than it is to face our sinful condition. It's kind of like this. You know, as Christians, we have the law of God given to us. And in the law of God, there's a bunch of rules and regulations of things that we know we are supposed to do. And we've added to these as, as Christians in the 21st century, right? We know that we're supposed to go to church. We're supposed to pray every day. We're supposed to read the Bible. We're supposed to forgive everyone. We're supposed to um, you know, love our neighbors. We're supposed to train our kids in godly ways. And, and you know, we, we try to hold and keep all of these things, and we try to keep up this image of perfection, but eventually, eventually, these blocks that we're trying to hold, the, the, these laws that we're trying to keep, we drop one. We can't hold perfection because we are broken and sinful people. And the burden of following God's law will eventually become unbearable. We all will mess up. Pastor John Stott says that the law of God is holy. And as a pastor, I say, yes, the law is is perfect. But it is unable to make us holy, he says. It is impotent, actually. Impotent is an extreme word of unable. It is, it is not possible for the law of God to make us holy because we are broken. We are conflicted. There is a sinful nature in each one of us, and we cannot change by trying harder. The Bible teaches us in Romans 7, in the the Matthew passage this morning, that we need gospel change. We need deep change. And we can't get there on our own. We can't get there by being a law to ourselves and ignoring the way God calls us to live. And we can't get there by trying harder to follow his law. We need help. So how do we get on the path of gospel change? We have to come to Jesus. The invitation is there in Matthew. He says, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Are you tired of trying hard to be a good person, to hold it all together? Are you exhausted at keeping up face to other people or to yourself? Do you see your need for ongoing gospel change but feel yourself stuck on getting there? Come to Jesus. 
In ancient times, a yoke was often used metaphorically to describe bondage or submission to an authority. And Jesus is playing off of something that was a common metaphor for what the Pharisees would do to people. The Pharisees were eager to burden people with the law of God, something that, that they held people to, and it weighed them down. The yoke of the law was impossible. But Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy. Bonding ourselves, submitting ourselves to Jesus takes the weight off, and then we can learn from him. How can this be? How can Jesus offer this? Well, it's because in, in Jesus, no tension between good and evil ever existed. He was tempted. He felt that tension, but he never fell into sin. He always lived in complete righteousness and wholeness, and obedience. So there was conflict in him, but he never sinned. He always did the right thing. Even, the scriptures say, until he was obedient until death itself. And when he went to the cross, he let himself wear our sinful nature on his shoulders. He took it upon himself. He took the consequences for our sin on himself. You could say that Jesus bonded himself to you and me. Paul would say that, you know, he united himself to us in our sinful nature. He became sin who knew no sin. No, Jesus did not sin, but he took sin upon himself, and he went to the cross. And on the cross, he faced the consequences for our sinful nature. God turned his face away from him. He cried out to God, but he didn't, he wasn't answered. He, he was left abandoned and alone, and he died. Why did, why did Christ do this? He did this so that he could set us free from bondage to an impossible law. He died so that he could speak grace into the tension that we feel alive in each one of us today. See, when we see the work of the cross in this way, when we see our true acceptance to God through Jesus Christ, it begins to change the tide. Who cares if my reputation is hurt by that person? Who cares if people don't see me as perfect with my life altogether? Because as one commentator put it, why do I care about what the peasants think of me when I have the honor of the king? In Jesus, through Jesus, we have the honor of the king of the universe. He thinks the world of us. This is the power of for gospel change, with our sin paid for, with the consequences of sin done away with in Jesus, we're set free to name it honestly and seek to be healed because we are people who have the honor of the king and nothing that we can do can take that away. 
Zechariah reminds us also that we have the promise that God will restore us. And not just restore us, he will restore us twice as much as before. Our God is for us, and the cross shows us this. And God lavishes good gifts upon his people. For gospel change to take root, we must keep this need for Jesus front and center in our lives. We must continually, constantly invite Jesus to speak his grace into our hearts, which means we must continue to name our conflicted, sinful nature. To stay on the path, we need to keep this front and center. And Paul did this. The Apostle Paul, in his letters, he addressed himself, you know, I am the chief of sinners. I am broken. I am conflicted in myself. He constantly kept his need for grace, continual grace, front and center. Can we humble ourselves like Paul? Can we be people who admit our deep sinful nature nature at work in, in our very present moments? See, what if the church, what if our church were a place where broken people knew they were welcomed and loved because they found themselves in good company? This gospel, the gospel is for those who know they need change. The Lord, as the psalm says, upholds those who are falling, who are falling, and lifts up all who are bowed down. Do we see ourselves as falling people, daily in need of grace? See, what if we did invite Jesus into the darkest and most painful places in our lives, the places where we are most broken and cause us the most shame? I wonder what words of grace Jesus would speak into those places if we let him. See, sin only has power over us when it remains hidden. So church, the gospel is good news for broken people. As Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Lord lifts up those who are falling. The Lord restores and renews those who trust in him on a daily basis. This is good news for broken people of whom I am the worst. Can we respond to this word with thanksgiving? As Paul does, a song we're about to sing names a God who is mighty to save, mighty to change. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, we recognize that we are at war in ourselves. Father, we invite you into our lives. Lord, would you speak words of conviction, also words of grace? Lord, would you give us the courage to uh, face daily this conflict that is in us and look to the cross, look to Jesus as the one who has, has freed us 
from the consequences of our sinful nature. Father, would you help us to be people who are in the process, continually in the process of being transformed. In Jesus we pray. Amen.